You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. To look at the history of using a genie as a plot tool would be an insurmountable task. Throughout history there have been hundreds upon hundreds of examples, but perhaps the most famous is the monkey's paw. While only just over a hundred years old, the monkey's paw feels like it's a story as old as time. A tale of a couple who gain possession of a magical monkey's paw that grants them three wishes, only these wishes come with enormous price tags, leading to an emotionally fueled decision to revive their dead son. The idea behind the monkey's paw is a simple one, and it's been used in various other TV shows like The X-Files and Supernatural. Be careful what you wish for. Tonight's couple in the Twilight Zone had also be careful, as they are about to meet the man in the bottom. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Castle, gentle and infinitely patient people whose lives have been a hope chest with a rusty lock and a lost set of keys. But in just a moment, that hope chest will be opened and an improbable phantom will try to bedeck the drabness of these two people's failure-laden lives with the gold and precious stones of fulfillment. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Castle, standing on the outskirts and about to enter the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on October 7th, 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Don Medford. Now, we've met Don Medford on the podcast previously, having directed A Passage for Trumpets, and we'll be seeing him again down the line with The Mirror, Death Ship, and the incredibly provocative Death's Head Revisited. If you remember our discussion on the Passage for Trumpet episode, Don Medford was also known as Midnight Medford, famous for shooting day for night rather than waiting for night time to fall. Where the man in the bottle places it in his pantheon of work is up for debate, but we'll look at that throughout the episode. So we open with a look at this antique store, which is quiet and quaint, but very full but they're clearly not doing so well, as Arthur Castle, the store's owner, asks aloud about a stack of bills that need to be paid. Edna. Huh? What about gas and electric? What? The gas and electric bill. How many months is that? Four months. That's one you better pay. <laughs> That's one I can't pay. Oh, I Arthur Castle was played by a man by the name of Luther Adler, who was really a stage actor and director by trade. He had been starring in movies since the late 30s, but he was mostly only ever in bit parts. He featured in TV shows, as many actors did at the time, with the most notable being Playhouse 90 and Mission Impossible, but nothing really jumps off his resume. He would act up until his final few years, with 1981's Absence of Malice being his last role, until he passed away in 1984. The character of Arthur Castle here is really a victim of a script that isn't that great. This is not one of Serling's finest bits of work, but Adler does give some very solid moments of performance. A good example of this is in the following scene, in which an old lady comes into the shop to sell an antique wine bottle, and he's very cagey about it at first, knowing she's going to bring in something else he can't afford to buy. I wish I could make it more. I really do. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Carson. You're a wonderful man. God bless you. 
Mr. Carter, it's not an heirloom, you know. I found it in an ash can. Please, Mr. Castle, forgive me for lying. Ah, that's all right, Mrs. Gump. Who knows? Maybe it'll turn out to be an ill. Yeah. Yeah? Thank you. So, he's clearly a good man. But that kindness is obviously something this old lady knows she could take advantage of. It's an odd scene, as it's plain to be very light in tone. Castle gives her the dollar, she smiles, and she thanks him. She knows that Castle is against the wall and is nearing bankruptcy, but she still feels like it's okay to take advantage of him. I'll be honest, the scene is supposed to be sweet due to the performance of music, but it doesn't sit right with me. And someone else it doesn't sit right with is Arthur's wife, Edna. She has to eat, doesn't she? You don't. Arthur. We're just around the corner from bankruptcy. You promised me no more handouts. Look at now. Maybe all I've got left is to try to find some poor cloud who I could feel sorry for. Edna was played by Vivi Janis, who, like Luther Adler, was not a prolific film actress and she mostly worked in TV. But over her 30-year career, she notched up an impressive 86 credits. She was featured in several episodes of Dragnet, Father Knows Best, and the ever-popular Wagon Train, but her only real notable film credit is The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. She retired from acting in 1979 and passed away in 1988. But perhaps the most interesting piece of trivia is that between 1935 and 1944, she was married to Robert Cummings, who featured in our last episode, King Nine Will Not Return. Down and depressed, Arthur goes on a rant about the store and talks about how it never made any money and how it broke the hearts of not just his father, but also his grandfather who owned it before him. It's quite a decent little speech and it makes you think about these kind of shops that you always see dotted around towns, especially here in the UK. The ones you walk past and wonder how they stay in business. Look at it, Edna, look at it. The legacy of a hundred years. My grandfather owned it and it broke his heart. Then my father killed him too. Look at it, look at it. The meanness of it, the shabbiness of it, the hand to mouth of it. It isn't just an antique shop where you pick up the pitiful remnants of other people's failures. It's a shrine to failure itself. That's what it is. It's a mausoleum, a burial ground for, for people's hopes. I really like that line. A burial ground for people's hopes. The whole shop is a museum of broken dreams, filled with items people had to sell because they need to put food on their plates or a roof over their head. It's a really nice line and it raises the question, who do they sell to when they're in need of money? But it seems as though their luck is about to change. When Arthur knocks over the wine bottle the old lady gave him, smoke starts to pour out, and a genie appears. How do you do? Rather than go into any lengthy, generic explanation of my existence, Suffice it to say that I am a genie. Well, that's quite correct. A genie. I can offer you four wishes with a guaranteed performance. Well, Mr. Castle? Mrs. Castle? What have you in mind? The genie was played by a man named Joseph Ruskin. He starred in some big name shows like Knight Rider, Mission Impossible, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and even in the Night Gallery in a segment called The Messiah on Mott Street. 
He also provided work for cartoons such as DuckTales and the mid-90s Spider-Man series, both of which are very dear to me and my childhood. He will make another stop into the Twilight Zone, but only uncredited in the episode To Serve Man, where he was the telepathic voice of the Canamids. He does have one other connection to Rod Serling as he featured in an episode of the Planet of the Apes TV show in 1974. Ruskin was a very busy actor, notching up 150 credits between 1955 and 2006, featuring in movies like Smoking Aces and The Scorpion King in his latter days. Perhaps Star Trek fans will be familiar with his name as he's featured in various roles across all walks of Trek lore. He was in the original series, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise, but was also in the movie Star Trek Insurrection, as well as lending his voice to various video games based around the show. He sadly passed away in December last year. Ruskin really is the star of the show, and perhaps it's because he gets the best lines and the best moments, but he outshines both of his co-stars. He's not your typical genie, standing at the top of the stairwell, smoking a cigarette, and wearing that immaculate suit. His voice is really cool, and it makes for an imposing presence. The episode as a whole is rather unremarkable, but Ruskin is a shining gem in a sea of mediocrity. Now, I think the business at hand is for you and Mrs. Castle to decide upon the nature of your four wishes. Keeping in mind, of course, that each wish is irrevocable. Once made, it is fulfilled, and once fulfilled, it is a matter of record. It can only be altered by yet another wish. Clear, Mr. Castle? The usual man in a bottle story would see the genie offer three wishes, but in this version of the story, Serling added a fourth. The formula goes that you do a test wish, make an impulse decision, and then use the third wish to make it all go away. There isn't really a good reason for the additional fourth wish here, other than it offers Serling the opportunity for the genie to show the castles that he's real without wasting a wish. It also makes sense to a degree to add a fourth wish, as it means the 22 minute runtime isn't wasted on just talking about the wishes, and it also plays into the impulse choice they make for wish number three. It's clever in a way, but it feels very jarring to hear four wishes when our minds have been trained to hear three. I think we'd better call the police. Wish for them. I can bring you Scotland Yard, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or every Bobby in the city of London. Is it the police you want? No, uh, that is not what we would wish for. Arthur, you're out of your mind. You believe him. Well, please go on, Mr. Castle, you were saying. Well, if I had a wish, uh, just for the sake of argument, I'd say I wanted that broken glass in that case to be fixed. Would you like to make it official, Mr. Castle? Well, Mr. Castle, is that your wish? Yes, that is my wish. I want that glass in that display case to be repaired. I don't think I really need to discuss how the broken glass effect was done, but it's a simple effect that actually works better than the disappearing soldiers in King Nine Will Not Return. So the genie has now shown that he is genuine, but only one half of the castles seem open to the idea. This is really the section of the episode when Adler and Janice get to stretch out their performances. 
Adler shows a lot of passion and excitement about the prospects of a simple life, while Janice shows great fear only saying a few words. But, of course, they are trumped by one single shot of the genie, who slyly smiles on the madness he's created. It really says a lot about how good Ruskin is in the role when he can steal a scene full of dialogue without saying a single word. But when it's all said and done, the decision has been made. They want one million dollars. Ask and you shall receive, Mr. Castle. But rather than just live a simple life, the castles fall for what got them into the discussion about the shop in the first place, their generosity. We see them holding a bit of a party in the store while they hand out huge wads of cash to their friends, telling them to pay off their mortgages and go on holidays. Even the old lady from the beginning gets a handout, despite ripping them off earlier in the day. It all seems to be going swimmingly, but the last person in the store isn't looking for a gift. Office of Internal Revenue. Yes, that's correct. There's a matter of an income tax, Mr. Castle. Just send us the bill and we'll pay it. But send us the bill in a hurry, would you please? My wife and I will be taking off for Europe very shortly. Dependent? The whole neighborhood. Oh, no, they don't count. What does that figure there mean? A million dollars, Mr. Castle, taxed on the basis of a husband and wife using the standard deductions. Mm. You owe the government approximately $907,000. What? Yes, that's correct. Then, in addition, there's a state income tax involved, which, using thumb rule, the whole thing comes to a total of, uh, roughly, mind you, $942,640. Arthur, we've already given away a lot of money. Well, now, if you'll just fill out this form and send it to us with your check. What's interesting about this first wish and its repercussion is that the wish isn't their undoing. Instead, it's their generosity. The bill they get from the tax man is for $940,000, which still would have left them with $60,000, a nice chunk of change in 1960. But because they're nice people and gave it all away, they're not just back to where they started, they're worse off. You don't tend to see this in these type of stories too often, where the people making the wish are their own worst enemy. And, I'll be honest, it's actually a nice change of pace. But even after one wish, the cracks are beginning to show. The genie goads Arthur into making another foolish wish, which causes the couple to have an argument. Oddly enough, Mr. Castle, this is the normal pattern that seems to be generally followed. Great excitement, great emotionalism. Strangely enough, hard to believe though it may be, only a modicum of happiness. Well, you got a couple of cheap customers here, mister. People who haven't known much happiness. What? What? What do we wish for? I wish I knew, Arthur. I don't know. What about it, Jeannie? What can we wish for now? What, what can come to us without tricks? Without tricks? I question the semantics here, Mr. Castle. There are no tricks involved. There are simply normal and understandable outgrowths and conditions that go with any windfall. No matter what you wish for, you must be prepared for the consequences. 
I love this performance from Ruskin. He's so incensed by the suggestion that he's a trickster, but then gives a sly smile to tell Arthur that no matter what he wishes for, he must suffer the consequences. Putting yourself in this position, what would you do? You have the option to make two more wishes, but the genie is flat out telling you that no matter what you do, you'll be screwed. I personally have always thought that if you made an error in your first wish, why wouldn't you just make the same wish again while taking into account the repercussions? But <laughs> I guess there would just be more repercussions. So it's at this point where Arthur Castle has a brainwave. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what. Head of a country. Ruler of a whole country. That's it. What about it, Genie? I want to be the head of a country who can't be voted out of office. Do you want to be more specific than that? Wait a minute. Let me give it to you this way. I want to be the head of a foreign country who can't be voted out of office, but it must be a contemporary country. Contemporary? Within this century. No problems. <laughs> what about consequences? <laughs> Consequences, Mr. Castle. <laughs> I've already told you. You run the risk of consequences no matter what you wish for. All right, then. Go ahead, Arthur. You wish for that. I want to be the ruler of a foreign country just as I've described it. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeannie. Take over. As you wish, Mr. Castle. <laughs> Before we dive into the twist, I just wanted to quickly mention how good I think this scene is. It's not often in these type of stories where you see the characters discuss their wishes in such detail, playing a verbal game of tennis with the genie while discussing the ramifications of their choices. There are some really good moments in here, but, and we'll come on to this in a bit, there's also some interesting changes for our characters that don't really work. But now it's time for the twist. A ruler of a foreign country that can't be voted out, within the last century, it can only be one thing. Head of a country, can't be voted out of office. I'm Hitler, I'm in a bunker, it's the end of the world. At the start of this episode, I said that Luther Adler was a victim of a bad script, and this is the best example of it. For the most part, the man in the bottle is not the worst from Serling, as there's some half-decent lines of dialogue and good exchanges. But this moment is really no good. It's one thing that he's looking directly into the camera, but it's Serling's need to explain what is happening on screen through words, rather than let Don Medford use the visuals. He's clearly Hitler, it's clearly the end of the war, we don't need Arthur Castle to explain this to us. It ruins what should have been the real high point of this episode. You can make the argument that scenes like this haven't dated well, and we shouldn't be so harsh on them for that reason, but I think even for the time this is a bit much. And I mean, I was the guy who defended the walking one-armed bandit in the fever, but this is a bit too cheesy, even for me. I wish... I wish I were back where it all started. I wish I were Arthur Castle again! So Arthur Castle is back in the shop, and they decide to make a go of this life rather than trying to wish for a better one. But with the glass cabinet still fixed, it looks like they came out on top, right? 
Shouldn't be a total loss. Huh? <laughs> I guess not. At the start of this podcast, I sounded quite down on the episode, but as I've been discussing it here with you, I've almost turned a corner on it. While hardly a written masterpiece, I don't think that The Man in the Bottle is a terrible episode of The Twilight Zone, but I don't think it's a great one either. In the book The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickry writes that it isn't terribly interesting, and that is fairly accurate, if a little harsh. Perhaps you can view this one in the same way we did King Nine Will Not Return, not a must-watch for a marathon, but a perfect palate cleanser between two episodes. However, in a toss-up between the two, I'd probably choose this one. It uses the be careful what you wish for motif better than the chaser did in season one, but there is something missing in the episode. It's not just the cheesy performance in the Hitler scene. I think it's in the characters of Arthur and Edna Castle. I praised them earlier in the episode when Edna was more conservative about using the wishes, calling them unholy, but after one wish, that backfired on them, no less. She's suddenly keen to use their third wish to rule the country. She doesn't have the right character progression to really make this work. Perhaps if their first wish hadn't backfired on them so badly, this transition wouldn't have felt so out of place. But before we hear from Rod, there's one nice little effect show where Arthur puts the broken glass bottle into the bin, only for it to form back together. A word to the wise now, to the garbage collectors of the world, to the curio seekers, to the antique buffs, to everyone who would try to coax out a miracle from unlikely places. Check that bottle you're taking back for a two-cent deposit. The genie you save might be your own. Case in point, Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Castle, fresh from the briefest of trips into the Twilight Zone. Hey, at least this episode wasn't too late from the last one. But I still feel like I should apologise. My biggest regret with getting these episodes out late is that it ruins the flow of listener feedback, which I think is really important for the Twilight Zone podcast. If people don't think the show is coming out, then they won't send feedback to you. Which is fair enough, really. I mean, I wouldn't. To that end, there is no submitted for your approval this week. But if you do have any feedback for any of the episodes we've discussed or future episodes coming up, luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. Our next episode will be Nervous Man in a $4 Room, which is an episode I rather like, so it should be one of the more positive episodes. As always, send your feedback to luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com, find us on facebook.com, the Twilight Zone Network, and on Twitter, at twilightzonenet. Until then, I'll speak to you next time. Take care, bye-bye.